0: All it's Isabel here. Before I get to the episode I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care including abortion threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. This decision and the subsequent decisions that will be made after something as disastrous as this will actively affect millions of Americans all across the country. It's time for us to be brave and to speak out for those who can't, those we love, and for ourselves. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. And a big shout out to Ariel Nissenblatt on Twitter at Ari This and That for organizing this for fellow podcasters. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Hello everyone, this is Isabel Cortez, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories for the Soul. If there's one genre that I love as much as horror, it's true crime. I can listen to how police found the dismembered body of an unidentified male victim as if I were listening to my favorite Lizzo song. I'll listen at the gym, in the office, or driving in my car, I wouldn't say I'm desensitized, but I can definitely say that loving horror as much as I do has made the true crime genre more digestible. And if you're a true crime fanatic like I am, then there's probably one thing that grinds your gears like it does mine. And that's bad denials having to listen to someone who clearly committed the crime in question lie and bad act their way through a police interview is absolutely obnoxious. It's all, no officer, I didn't kill my ex-wife. I was golfing at two in the morning with some friends, but you can't call them because they moved to Canada literally immediately after the game. Or, no, I didn't kidnap that person. Their hair and blood is in my truck because the other day they hopped in my car and turned into a werewolf and left their DNA all over the place. Ridiculous. I always find myself wishing that they would look at the mountain of evidence and see that they've been caught and just confess already. But no, they double down and sink with their ship. Confessions are awesome when they do happen, though. It's like sunshine breaking through heavy clouds. Some people confess on their deathbeds, while others slip up and say something to someone that they shouldn't have. Some do the right thing and confess once they know the jig is up, and others confess to a giant floating skeleton with glowing red eyes. At least, that's what real estate maven Shelby Helene Adelaide hoped would happen. Adelaide thought that if a criminal was confronted with their own mortality, Perhaps a ghostly specter from the beyond that reminded them of what life after death held for someone like them, then they would be more inclined to confess to whatever misdeeds they committed. She was so convinced by this idea that in 1927 she filed a patent for what was to be called the Shelby Helene Adelaide Confession Apparatus. I wish I could tell you that the world kept track of a woman like this. I wish I could tell you that there's an incredible amount of detailed information on Mrs. Adelaide and what led her to patenting a machine like this, but there's not. Internet sleuths have surmised that she was a bit of a real estate whiz, selling and leasing high-valued properties along Southern California. Her husband's name was Edgar, and not much is known about him either, and that the confession apparatus was the one and only patent that she ever filed. On August 10, 1927, in Oakland, California, Adelaide officially filed her patent in the hopes of helping the criminal justice system wrangle in some true confessions. According to the official patent, quote, the present invention relates to a new and useful apparatus for obtaining confessions from culprits or those suspected of the commission of crimes and photographically recording these confessions in the form of sound waves in conjunction with their pictures Depicting their very expression and emotion to be preserved for later reproduction as evidence against them. Awesome! A new and effective way to extract confessions and record them, along with any emotional response that the person might have, so that it can later be used in court. Sounds great. But how are you going to do that, Mrs. Adelaide? Well, that's simple. According to the patent, The primary object of my invention is the provision of an apparatus for the creation of illusionary effects, calculated to impremise the subject with their being of a supernatural character and to so work upon his imagination as to enable an inquisitor operating in conjunction with the recording system to obtain confessions and graphically record them by action under the control of an electronic impulses governed by varying intensities of sound waves. So... The plan was to present a suspected criminal with a supernatural being, combined with varying degrees of spooky noises, in the hopes that they'll confess to their crimes out of fear. I mean, is it ethical? No. But does it have the potential to be incredibly effective? Absolutely. Think Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Presented with a dead person telling you that if you don't confess to all your wrongdoings and change your ways, you'll be damned in the land of the dead, one might just confess and change. If there's one thing that we can count on in this world, it's people's fear of death and what happens after we die. We hate the unknown. We hate the idea that we have no idea what happens after we leave this mortal coil That's why we're so fascinated with the supernatural and paranormal. It gives us some semblance of an answer. And if one of these supernatural creatures were to come up to us and say, confess your crimes and change your ways or else a terrible fate awaits you after death, we might just tell that person where that stolen money is and pray that we're not too late to change our fate. That's what Shelby Helene Adelaide was banking on that our fears were enough to make the apparatus a success. So, how was the machine supposed to work? According to the patent, quote, A structure is divided into two chambers, one chamber of which is darkened to provide quarters in which the suspect is confined while being subjected to examination, the other chamber being provided for the examiner the two chambers being separated from each other by a partition which is provided with a panel upon one side of which is mounted a figure in the form of a skeleton, the said skeleton having the rear J portion of the skull removed and the recording apparatus inserted wherein as shown. So in layman's terms, two chambers were separated by a partition. One chamber houses the suspect, the other the investigator. Both chambers are dark enough where the two can't see each other, but there is a light in the middle partition that turns on via a switch on the investigator's side. When the interrogation is ready to begin, the light turns on and a skeleton apparition is revealed, covered by what Adelaide called, quote, a diaphanous veil. The skeleton had red lights in its eye sockets, had the ability to blink, and a megaphone was positioned in, quote, such a manner that the voice of the operator appears to come from the mouth of the skeleton, unquote. Ominous lights were built into the chamber along with a little spectral background music to set the mood. The investigator would ask a series of questions formulated in such a way to trigger an emotional confession from the suspect. The film camera installed in the skeleton's skull was meant to, to quote, Photographically and simultaneously record both scenes and words. Unquote. The interrogation relied heavily on not just the words that the criminal spoke when confessing, but their emotions and expressions while confessing as well. Adelaide knew that, quote, It is a well-known fact in criminal practices that confessions obtained initially from those suspected of crimes through ordinary channels are almost invariably later retracted or repudiated by the criminal with the charge that these confessions have been obtained through intimidation or under duress, unquote. Her hope was that if one of these criminals who confessed via her machine were to later recant their story, the investigator could play back the video obtained by the skeleton skull to show that the suspect was telling the truth due to their emotional responses. Patent number US 1749090A was accepted on March 4th, 1930, but there's no evidence to suggest that the apparatus was actually built or put to use. Unfortunately for us, Shelby Helene Adelaide never entered anything else into the patent office, which isn't to say that she never invented anything else, only that we don't have any record of her doing so. Even more unfortunate was Adelaide's death in 1947. Following her death, the patent on her machine expired on March 4th, 1947, and nobody knows what happened to her husband after that either. All we have left is this extraordinary story about an extraordinary woman and her even more extraordinary invention, but that won't stop our imaginations from running wild. The story you're about to hear is that of Shelby Helene Adelaide, a woman who wanted to accomplish something great in her life, something that people would remember. While this story is fictional, it's a story that could possibly explain what would motivate someone to create a machine such as hers. Shelby Adelaide was bored. There was very little for her to complain about. She had a good husband, a steady real estate business, and she was more than lucky at the racetrack. But there was a part of her that felt unfulfilled. She had always wanted to be known for something, remembered for something. If she ever died an untimely death, she didn't want to just be known as the woman who sold you your house. She wanted to be the woman who changed the world or improved it or something. But how much could a woman accomplish in 1927? Her economic status granted her certain liberties, but even then it wasn't much. If she was going to reach her full potential, she was going to have to think outside the box a little. Over the passing weeks, Shelby visited exotic animal enclosures, worked with sharpshooters, interviewed homicide detectives, and even toured several sanatoriums. It was all very fascinating, but the thing that finally shifted her perception on the world around her was a seance conducted by two sisters at their home in the Hollywood Hills. She had gone on a whim. One of the orderlies working at the sanatorium she had visited made a comment that in 40 years, the location would be a popular seance attraction. She had never attended a seance before and inquired to the closest one. Lucky for her, there was one taking place that night at the home of two twin mediums. It was a remarkable experience. She was half expecting ghosts and sheets and ectoplasm leaking from noses and ears. But what she witnessed that night was something entirely different. The sisters were Elizabeth and Isabella, and they specialized in contacting the dead. A group of five people, Shelby included, were invited into a small room towards the back of their home, shrouded in heavy burgundy curtains. They sand around a circular table with a spirit board in the center. Isabella went to remove the board, much to the confusion of everyone around them. We only use this for one-on-one sessions, she informed the group. Too many voices confuses the board and heightens the possibility of something slipping in that was not invited. The sisters instructed everyone to hold hands and concentrate on the person that they wanted to contact. Shelby had no deceased relatives or acquaintances, so she tried her best to clear her mind and allow everyone else a proper shot at it. After a few minutes of silence, Elizabeth's jaw began to slack, and her hold on her sister's hand visibly tightened. The lights around the room flickered, and tremors shook the table. Jonah. Elizabeth whispered. The man sitting beside Shelby locked eyes with the medium. "'Jonah!' Elizabeth repeated more forcefully. "'It is I, Marcus. It was foolish of you to come here tonight, brother.' "'Marcus?' the man named Jonah replied. "'I've come to ask for your forgiveness.' The laugh that escaped Elizabeth's mouth was deep and husky, as was the voice that said, How does one forgive the man who murdered him when he doesn't have the courage to say it himself? You killed me, Jonah. Murdered your brother in cold blood for money and power. All I asked for was love, big brother, and you shot me in the back. The spectators around the table gasped, Shelby tried to yank her hand out of Jonah's, but Isabella stopped her. Don't, she warned. It'll break the circle. I'm sorry, Jonah cried. I'm sorry. I've lived with the weight of my own guilt every day since it happened. I'm sorry. Confess your guilt, Elizabeth shouted. I do, I do, I'm sorry, Jonah shouted back. Confess! Elizabeth screamed and the lights turned off in the room. Jonah lurched out of his chair, sending Shelby careening into the person beside her and ending the seance. The following morning, Oakland was all abuzz with the news of a man named Jonah Smalls who had run into a police station and confessed to the murder of his younger brother. He had even led police officers to the body, which he had buried in his parents' backyard. When asked what led him to confess to a 5-year murder, Smalls had said that the ghost of his brother had told him to do it. It was the most sensational news story in months, and it also gave Shelby an incredible idea. What if she built a machine that could extract confessions from potential criminals using the supernatural force of spirits? She kept seeing the look on Jonah's face when confronted by the voice of his dead brother, the amount of absolute horror and fright that must have seeped through his bones to make him run to the police and confess to his brother's murder. She wanted to recreate that, but how? After several days of research into not only the paranormal, but engineering and mechanics, she went to work on creating blueprints for her interrogation apparatus. She laid out the blueprints for a box with two chambers, one for the interrogator and the other for the suspected criminal. Dividing the chambers was a partition that would conceal a mock skeleton with both a video and sound recording device hidden inside. But what shall be left out of her blueprints was the thing that would make her apparatus truly work. Carved into the wooden floor and hidden underneath a panel was a sigil meant to call the dead. She had found it in a book and hoped it would work. The original plan had been to ask Elizabeth and Isabella for a symbol of sorts, but they had outright refused without ever giving her the opportunity to explain why she needed it. She would just have to make do with what she had. The book explained that the sigil would thin the veil between worlds and call on the spirits of deceased persons. A guilty conscience is a powerful thing, so the person's guilt, combined with the power of the symbol, would hopefully be powerful enough to manifest someone or something. Obviously, the machine was not intended for those suspected of theft, arson, or things of that nature. No. Shelby's machine was meant to capture those who had committed the most heinous of crimes murder. It took three months to complete the plans, and at the end of which she was itching to build it and see if it worked. She submitted her plans that August to the patent office, but on the advice of her husband, didn't wait for the plans to be approved to start building. In September, she had a group of carpenters and engineers that were bribed for their discretion begin to work. But the process was slow. Shelby couldn't help but feel eyes on the back of her head every time she was alone with the machine. Her workers reported hearing odd noises, their names being whispered from inside the chamber, and the overwhelming sensation of being watched. Many quit after the first week. They were immediately replaced by a different crew who did the same. By the time that the machine was finished, the following February, she had gone through four different teams. But despite all the setbacks and odd occurrences, it was completed, just in time for the patent to be approved in March. Shelby was excited to try out the machine, but she didn't know who to try it on or how to even begin. The apparatus was built in a warehouse she had leased under a fake name, and it wasn't exactly mobile, so whoever her guinea pig was, was going to need to be okay with following a stranger into a warehouse. She figured the best way to start was by telling a half-truth instead of telling an all-out lie. Her husband Edgar had a friend in the Oakland Police Department and she explained to him how the apparatus worked, what it was meant to do, and what she was hoping to accomplish with it. She just left out the calling on the real ghost part for obvious reasons. Much to her surprise, the detective was all for trying it on live test subjects. The first person she tested it on was a man named Tobias Fink, who was suspected of murdering his former business partner. Fink was placed inside the chamber, the sigil was uncovered, and a few cursory questions were asked to motivate the spirit to appear. By the end of the session, not only was Fink shaking and in tears, but so was Shelby. The pain and agony wafting from the spirit was so palpable that it bled through the walls and infected her. She was more than happy to end the interrogation once her confession was secured. When the tape was shown to the Oakland police department, they spoke to Tobias Fink again, where he not only confessed to the murder one more time, but led them to the body and even named an accomplice. The machine was a success. But how do people not see that the skeleton is fake? When police officer had asked her. Fear is a powerful emotion, she explained. When one is in such a state of fear, they can't tell the difference between what is real and what is imaginary. She wasn't going to expose her secrets to the police. She was perfectly content with them letting believe what they wanted to believe. Her machine worked. That was all that mattered. Following Fink's confession, the police used Shelby's apparatus 12 more times. And each time, the confessions that were extracted produced real results. Obviously, the use of the machine had to remain a secret. Most of the officers in the police department feared not only retribution for using the less-than-humane method to extract confessions, they also feared the possibility of being labeled superstitious. They didn't want to be laughed at for believing in the power of ghosts and the supernatural. Shelby didn't mind. As long as her machine was being used and her name was on the patent, she was happy. After each experiment, Shelby kept a detailed log of what went wrong what improvements needed to be done, and her overall feelings following each event. The one thing she noted after each time was that it was getting harder and harder to snap the suspects out of their frightened state. After confession number nine, the suspects were not able to come out of it at all. Numbers nine through 12 were currently being housed in sanitariums. Part of her felt guilty because she knew her machine had done that to them but her husband reminded her that they were murderers and would have probably ended up there anyway when their guilty conscience finally got to them. But it was more than that. It was getting harder and harder for Shelby to shake it off herself. She had to be in the machine with the suspects when the spirits of their victims came to them. She heard every vile thing said, every graphic description of the violence that took place. And then when the interrogation was over and the panel concealed the sigil once more, she could still hear their voices echoing in her head. She could still hear their whispers and cries of agony every time she walked by the machine. It was as though every time she used it, it was getting harder and harder to turn off. The spirits were lingering and she didn't know why. The only thing she could think of doing was to call Elizabeth and Isabella. She wasn't going to tell them that she had done the one thing they had told her not to do. She simply posed the question to them as a hypothetical. The more you call on the dead, the more confused they will be, the sisters told her. The dead are meant to stay in their world and us in ours until it's time for us to move on." The more time they spend here, the more they'll want to stay. The more they won't be able to tell the difference between worlds. Shelby heeded their advice and decided that she would conduct one more experiment before taking a break. Lucky suspect number 13 was a 37-year-old man by the name of Anthony Stone. Stone was suspected of killing his best friend and his own wife after he discovered that the pair were having an affair. For three months he had been adamant that he had not murdered them but the police were unconvinced. With minimal evidence to go on, the only way to convict Stone would be through a confession. Shelby placed him in the chamber and set up her recording devices. Once Stone was ready, she pushed a button which slid back the panel hiding the manifestation sigil. "'What's this on the floor?' he asked, but Shelby ignored him. "'You're suspected of murdering your best friend Adam and your wife Denise,' she said. "'Yes, but I didn't do it,' he replied. Shelby ignored that too. "'What motivated you to commit this act?' she asked him. "'Hey, this thing on the floor is glowing,' he said, his voice quivering. "'Adam was your friend.' Denise was the mother of your two children. Why would you murder them? She asked. The air around her turned ice cold, a sign that the sigil was working. A tremor shook the machine, rocking them slightly. That was new. Shelby cleared her throat and repeated her question. Why would you murder them? I didn't. I swear to God, I didn't. Stone replied. He was sobbing already. Shelby felt the heat from the sigil at her feet. It began to burn the soles of her shoes. Something was wrong. Anthony! A male voice from within the chamber cried out. You murdered me, and now you dare take the Lord's name in vain when I witnessed you wash my blood from your very hands. Anthony? A female voice asked. Denise? No, Stone said as a violent sob escaped his body. I felt the knife pierce my flesh, Anthony. Felt the life slowly leave my body as you walked away from me. I called your name, begged you to come back, but you wouldn't even look at me. And now I'm dead. And you're alive. That doesn't seem fair to me. Shelby was shaking from head to toe. If it took any longer to get a confession, she would have to cut the experiment short. She could feel the spirit's malevolent and angry energy sipping through the walls. Stone was quietly sobbing in his chamber. This is inhumane, she thought to herself. But then he stomped his feet in frustration and rattled the chains on his wrists. ''I didn't mean to kill you,'' he shouted. ''I was so angry, so consumed by my pain and jealousy. It was an accident.'' ''Accident?'' scoffed the spirit of Adam. ''The only accident here is that I left you alive. I have been following you for some time, and the world should know the evil acts that your hands committed.'' ''You left our children without a mother, Anthony.'' Denise cried. And soon they won't have a father as well. Confess, Anthony, Shelby said, her voice shaking. Confess and I can make them go away. I confess, he shouted. I confess. I killed you. I killed you both. I murdered you in cold blood. At that, Shelby pushed the button and covered the sigil. The interrogation was over. Anthony Stone was led out of the chamber while Shelby remained inside. She was shaken to her core and needed time to decompress. Shelby? A voice called out. At the sound of her name, Shelby perked up. Perhaps the o- officer had forgotten something. But something about the voice made her uneasy. Yes? She replied. Shelby, a separate voice called out. Then, several voices began to call her name. A cacophony of voices, men, women, and children, all saying the same thing. Shelby, Shelby, Shelby! They were coming from the second chamber. The panel concealing the sigil slid open on its own. The mark began to glow red hot once again. An ice-cold wind ravaged through the room. The spirits of the dead were trying to get Shelby's attention, and the only thing separating them from her was the partition housing the fake plastic skeleton. She covered her ears with the heels of her hands and begged the voices to stop. "'What do you want from me?' she asked them. The voices spoke one on top of the other, as if fighting to be heard. "'I want to be free!' I want to see my children. I'm in so much pain. Make it stop. I want revenge. He shouldn't get to be happy while I'm being eaten by worms in the ground. Finally, in unison, they said, We want a voice, Shelby. Be our voice. We want a body, Shelby. Be our body. Shelby Helene added, we have chosen you. The machine began to violently shake tossing Shelby around. Blood trickled from her forehead. Her nose was bruised and sore and it was getting difficult for her eyes to focus. All the while the voices cried out, we have chosen you. We have chosen you. No, she cried out and rammed her shoulder into the door. She came tumbling out of the machine and slammed the door to the chamber behind her. With fear and adrenaline moving her body, Shelby grabbed a welding torch that one of the construction crews had left behind and set the apparatus on fire. She was aware of how close the flames were to her skin and of the smell of burnt fabric as the edges of her sleeves singed away, but she didn't care. She waited until the entire thing was engulfed in flames. It was only after she knew that there would be no saving it she walked back to her home. There, she burnt her journal, her sketches, and anything that had to do with the invention. When it was all gone, she called the fire department and anonymously reported a fire at the warehouse. Shelby never spoke of her machine again. She did her best to forget the ordeal, but it was only after she had left Oakland, California that she was truly able to do so. There was only one thought that bothered her from time to time. The patent office still had copies of her original blueprints. She hoped that they would be lost to time, but a voice in the back of her head told her not to get her hopes up. It's a shame that we don't know more about Shelby Helene Adelaide. It's a shame that there isn't more information on someone with such an imaginative and fearless mind. But maybe the lack of information is what keeps her and her curious apparatus floating through the cultural zeitgeist. We are all wondering as to what must have compelled her to create a machine like this. What had she seen in her life? What had she witnessed? Ghosts? Murder? Both? It's strange and fascinating. Shelby makes us ask ourselves, what would we confess to if the ghosts of our past came to haunt us? So, in the name of Mrs. Shelby Helene Adelaide, ask yourself that. If confronted with a ghost from your past, what would you confess to? And would you actually confess to it? Thank you for taking this haunted journey with me today. If you want to hear more myths, legends, and scary stories, make sure you push that little favorite button to get notified when new episodes roll around. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. And while you're there, don't be afraid to rate and subscribe. Make sure you follow the podcast too on Instagram at Scary Stories for the Soul Pod and Twitter at Scary for the Soul. Until next time.